We have just released issue 4 of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is afterlife research. My guest is Oliver Lazar, who has the German equivalent of a doctoral degree in medical science. He's not a practicing physician, but a scientist. And he is the author of the new book, Beyond Matter, The Moving Experiences of a Scientist with the Spiritual World and His Afterlife Research. Dr. Lazar is based in Essen, Germany. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Oliver. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Hello, Jeff. Nice to see you. And I'm really delighted to have the opportunity to talk to you. So thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you as well. And I think a, a good way to begin, of course, is with your life story, because you went through a radical transformation. At one time, you thought of yourself as a conventional materialist scientist. So let's, let's start there. Let's talk about your education and your scientific background. Yes, yeah, so 43 years of my life, I really lived in this very materialistic or natural worldview. And I studied medicine and um, I studied computer science, so very down to earth. And especially during my medical studies, I had a lot to, to do with biology, physics, chemistry, biochemistry. And I really thought everything that I was taught at school, at university, this has to be true. And that everything is based upon matter, you know, so everything we are, not only our body that I can touch, yes, so our emotions, our love, our feelings, everything is based upon, I don't know, electrophysiological uh, processes. And um, yeah, that was what I uh, trusted in, because everything was gathered by PhD professors in, in scientific methodologies. Why should I, why should I question things like this? And it really needed some kind of an update on version 2.0. That's what I always call it. Um, because it was uh, the 9th of October in 2017 when everything changed. It was uh, uh, really a, a, a tragic, a tragic story behind it, which really changed my life and my, my, my worldview. It was uh, that I was driving my then 13 years old daughter to school. And we witnessed a car accident, a fatal car accident. So there was this huge concrete mixer truck turning right. And I think due to the blind spot, the driver didn't see a girl riding on her bike. So the truck ran over her. And in the afternoon, we knew the girl has died as consequence of, uh, of this accident. But in the moment when we arrived, at the moment as we arrived, 
at that place. We didn't exactly know who was involved. So I didn't know that it was a classmate of my daughter. But it was Yoma. Yoma, she was one of my daughter's classmates. And uh, she died in the afternoon. And my daughter just came home in the morning. A few hours later, she came in, ran in into our house and she was crying and shouting, it was Yoma, it was Yoma. And I was directly going to my laptop, uh, reading the news. And in the early afternoon, uh, there was this message, the girl has died as a consequence of, of the accident. And the moment I found out, something happened to me. And it was a grief that I have never felt before in my life. And of course, you, you might say, Jeff, it, it's a usual reaction to feel grief, to feel empathy. But what I felt went far beyond that. It really put the ground out from under my feet. My, my heart was torn apart and I've never felt such a grief before in my life. And what is curious about the situation is that I didn't know that girl at all. So I really had contact to almost any other, every other child of my daughter's class but I never spoke to Yoma. But after her passing, I had this one memory in, in my mind. I didn't know that I had a memory of that, but it came into the front of my mind. It was a situation at a school event where we passed by and our eyes met for a split second. And this picture really flourished in, in, in my mind. Very interesting because I didn't know her at all. And I, I felt so connected to her. But I can remember that I some kind of became depressed. I have withdrawn and my family didn't recognize me anymore, Jeff. So my, my wife just recently said to me, Oliver, at that time, I thought our marriage wouldn't survive this. this because she said, you, you are sitting at our table. We're having lunch. We're having dinner. But you were here only physical." With your mind, you have been somewhere else. And, and she was right, because day and night I was thinking of Yoma, I was thinking of her parents. And I would say three or four weeks after the accident, I sat in my office and I was very sad and I, I, I closed my eyes, I was thinking of Yoma. And now comes the moment that has changed my life. Because I was sitting here uh, thinking of her, my eyes were, were closed and somehow I felt that I wasn't alone anymore. So something or some kind of energy was approaching me from the outside. And on the inside of my body, there was some kind of a vibration. And I had goosebumps running up and down only on the left side of my body. And it came to me in such a realness, in such a pithiness that I really don't have had to question it because it was so real, Jeff, as if I would go to you and grab your arm. You, you don't question it because it is so real. And, and I perceived um, that someone has touched me in my hair and on my cheek. And the most important part was that I was flooded with such an infinite love, uh, a love that I couldn't find words for. I think in my, my book I have written, no matter what adjective, what language you would choose, you can't even come close to describe the intensity of the love that I have felt in that moment. And I would describe it maybe as uh, a divine love. Or David Lorimer, for example, he always calls it a cosmic love. 
And anyone who has had a near-death experience uh, always describes quite the same, that this is some kind of a love, the quality of the love is, is different from the love you know here on earth. And I would always say that here on earth, the, the, the biggest love you can feel would be the love to your own children. But the love that I felt at that moment went far, far beyond that. So it was really some kind of a roller coaster ride of emotions because I was so sad in a deep grief and suddenly I was the happiest person on the planet because I felt so loved and it somehow felt as if I was at home. I had, I had a light, I have seen light, not physically, my eyes were, were closed and it felt like home. So a very, very special moment that has changed my life, I would say. I, I directly knew now my life is different. I directly knew someone has opened the door and here's your new path with spirituality. Um, and you have to understand, I have never had to do with spiritual topics. They were not important in my life. At that moment, I didn't really know what it was. So there were a lot of question marks in my head. I mean, I knew that there might be something called a spirit guide or something like that. By now, I know what it was. It, it, was, it was a soul contact to Yoma. But at that moment, I didn't know. And this was the starting point for me um, to read, to read, to read and to watch YouTube videos because I was so interested in it. And I would say in, in, in the next three to four weeks, I have read so many books, more than in my whole life before combined. And I have read a lot of books, I can tell you that. But I was so interested. And, and, and the first answers I found were uh, people were talking about their near-death experience. And they also speak of this divine love, of, of the light and things like that. So there I found my first answers. And it took me... Uh, four months that I have booked an appointment with a medium here, a very famous medium in Germany, um, because I wanted to know more. And the idea was to book an aura reading, but the idea behind it was that I just want to get in touch with the medium and to ask her questions. So what was it? What have I perceived? That was the idea. So I did not book an afterlife contact. But after four months, as I was sitting in her office, um, the aura reading started. And after four or five minutes, she said to me, Oliver, I have to stop here. There is nothing I can tell you. So in the first moment, I was very disappointed. But on the other hand, I knew I came here for something else. I wasn't there for an aura reading, but I didn't exactly knew what, uh, know what it was. But the medium said to me, Oliver, now I, I'm opening, I open up for the spiritual world. Um, because she had some kind of an on-off switch for the spiritual world. And then she said to me, Oliver, I can see a girl showing me um, a bicycle. And she, said, uh, she says that she died in a bicycle accident. Do you understand this? And the only thing she knew about me was my phone number and my first name. And even if she had Googled me, if she knew my, my surname and she had Googled me, she never would have found 
any any um, uh, contact or, or or that I had a contact to to uh, Yoma, but suddenly she said she's here, and I, and I was very very happy. I was so glad that she was there, but I couldn't believe in it. I I thought I was not entitled to have. Um, an afterlife contact because she was a complete stranger to me. I didn't know that girl at all. And suddenly she, she was there. And the medium described her outward appearance very precisely. So she had long hair, she was a very tiny person and so on. So that was correct. And the most important part now was that she said she's now uh, showing herself riding on, on a horse. And um, I knew that. I, I mean, I didn't know really much ab about Yoma, but I knew that she was a passionate horse rider. And then she said she sh she's showing herself riding a horse. So that was wonderful evidence. But after that, uh, she said, now she's sh showing me two number ones, two single number ones. She said she's drawing these numbers here in front of my eyes, a number one and another number one. Do you understand this? And I said to the medium, no, I'm sorry, I do not understand this. And she said, well, that happens quite often that I don't know, that I don't know what it means and that the sitter, so me as the participant, um, uh, do not understand it. But this will clarify afterwards. And this is the most important um, the most important part now, because this is the basis for our later study, um, because she was right. A few weeks after this um, appointment, I was meeting uh, Yoma's mother and I asked her about the two number ones. And she said, I don't understand it either. And then I said, well, shortly before that, she showed herself riding a horse. And then I can remember it very exactly. Uh, Yoma's mother was watching me with big eyes and she said, yes, now I understand it. Because shortly before her accident, she won first, prize, uh, first place uh, twice on an equestrian tournament or a horse show or whatever you would like to call it. So twice the first place. Here we have the two single number ones because the medium emphasized it is not an 11. There are two number ones. And, uh, I dub and, and I checked her, her phone number and, and her address, nothing matched. But here you can see that, well, I think that this message was meant to be clarified by her mother. It was a message for her mother, not for me. But the question is, what is the source or who is the originator of this highly specific piece of information? It can't be the medium. It can't be me. So there must have been a third person, mind or soul or whatever. And the question is, um, who could it be? So who, who, who has the information? It is Yoma. And who has a motivation to talk about it? It is Yoma because she wants to show, hey, I'm still here. And for me, this is inference to the best explanation that it is obvious that it has to be Yoma who has brought on this information. So this was really a very wonderful moment. And, but that was not all. As I was uh, sitting uh, there with, with the medium, she continued and she said, Oliver, now she's showing me that 
in a previous life you once have been her father and in that previous life you also had to deal with her early death and at that moment it felt totally right for me i didn't question it i i i just understood i understood why i felt so everything made sense but this has changed on my way home as i was driving back home in my car i became the, the the scientist and i i just said to myself hey oliver you have been to to a medium telling you really an extraordinary story but you don't have to believe in this but she she was talking about the previous life and i found out that three weeks later there was a seminar in my hometown here in the Ruhrgebiet in germany in my hometown there was a seminar about reincarnation it was uh, it was um, made by another medium and i booked this seminar and we were sitting there in, in in this room maybe 20 30 people and there was this introduction round i think you call it like that when everybody says his name and introduces uh, himself and i was the last one in line and i was sitting right Uh, next to the medium and I said hi I'm Oliver and I witnessed the car accident of one of my daughter's classmates and then she interrupted me and she said yes Oliver I know and the girl is standing right behind you she has long blonde hair and she says that in a previous life you once have been her father and in that previous life you have witnessed her early death but you shouldn't experience it again in this life And I just looked at her and I, I couldn't believe in it because she, she, uh, she was a complete stranger to me. And I know that she doesn't know the other medium. So they couldn't talk to each other. And there was the second completely strange woman to me telling me exactly the same story about this previous life. I mean, if both mediums had said to me, you once have been her father in a previous life, I would have said, okay, maybe this is association. They wanted me uh, to understand why I feel like I feel. But both of them have said that I also had to experience her early death in that previous life. And I find this is really a very specific piece of information. And the second medium continued. She described the whole accident. So she was describing... Uh, the truck, the color of the truck, this was correct. She said that she didn't die at the place, that she died in the afternoon in, in the hospital and several other things that I didn't know. And I was talking about all the details with uh, Yoma's parents later on. And I would say that 80 to 90% of the details she said were correct. And that was the moment where I said to myself, okay, Oliver, Even if you're a scientist, a down-to-earth scientist, but I can't explain it any longer with my materialistic worldview. And I felt how comforting it was for me, but also for other parents. There are a lot of other orphan parents there, and they also have received their, their messages right from the spiritual world with, with really high evidence. And I have seen how these orphan parents suddenly could smile again so they had hope they could go on with their lives and this was the starting point for me to say okay 
What if I could find out that I'm not the only person who has received a message like um, riding on a horse and two single number ones? So what if there are more stories like that and I could maybe um, do some research on it? This would be wonderful for parents, especially for parents, but also for other people who have lost a loved one. And yeah, this was the starting point for me to say, now I'm taking a look at it from a scientific point of view. And well, there started the Erium study. Yeah, that's the story, Jeff. That's quite a powerful story. And uh, I wonder about the reincarnation piece of it. Uh, have you come to accept that uh, you did have a past life with Yoma? Yes, I absolutely did. I'm absolutely sure about it because I've read a, read a lot of books, seen a lot of videos about reincarnation and there is so much evidence. I think Jim Tucker is his name in the United States, right? Here in Germany, we have a guy called David Hustler. He is um, working hand in hand with uh, Jim Tucker, as far as I know. And there are so many stories, especially children who can remember uh, their previous lives. And I'm absolutely sure about this previous life. And the second medium told me some details about this life. It was at, in the end of the 19th century. And I was an artist working for the Moulin Rouge. And um, I was part of uh, the circle around an artist. I don't know, can't remember his name right now. So they met in a cafe in, in, in the north of Paris called Café Chat Noir. And I was part of this uh, group of artists there. But I couldn't find any evidence about me in that previous life. So I had no names or things like that. But because sometimes you have names and you really can do some research on it. But I wasn't successful. Mm. And now you mentioned that uh, your wife was concerned that your marriage might uh, break up. How has your family adjusted to uh, the new 2.0 version of yourself? It was a process. It really was a process. I mean, my wife was spiritual before I was. She was spiritual all her, her whole life. And... I think she, she was the first who understood after a few weeks what's going on. And she was very open and she understood my love for this child or for this family because it's really difficult when suddenly there is a strange person coming into your life or into your family and you feel a very deep love. I mean, it's not a love between a man and a woman. It's, it's really it's a hard love. It's a love like a love between a father and a daughter. And it's really very difficult, but I think my, my wife, as I said, was spiritual and she understood. And now she's become one of my biggest supporters. And I'm very grateful for that. And she gave me books and, and she, she, she sent me links to interesting videos. And now we're, we're working as a team. But the first few weeks or month was very difficult. And we didn't tell um, our own children. I think... It took about two years, two or three years, that we are talking about it in our family. And I was uh, telling it to, to, to my two daughters. I mean, they are grown up. My, my, my oldest daughter is 23 and my youngest now is 19. And um, yeah, they, they were very open to it. It wasn't a big deal. They said, yeah, that's cool. 
and that's it. <laughs> and then they went on uh, doing uh, different stuff. Was your daughter very close to Yelma? No, she wasn't. No. I mean, uh, she, she knew her sometimes, they, they, they were talking, but they were not really deeply connected. Well, let's go on now and talk about the, the study that you did. I'm, I'm sure as a researcher, you made a point of familiarizing yourself with the literature regarding similar studies of work with mediums. Yes, yes, absolutely. And what I found was uh, always quite the same study design, namely working with blinding. For example, the study by Julie Beischel or Trisoldi et al. from last year uh, from Italy. And um, their study design is always like uh, there is the medium on the one side and the sitter, that's what we call the participant here, is on the other side. They are in different rooms, so they really do not meet, they do not see each other. And the medium gives messages and afterwards the participant has to read transcripts or transcriptions of, of the messages and they have to identify their own, uh, their own sitting. So there might be pieces of information in the transcripts that um, they are familiar with. So they, they see, ah, this piece of information belongs to my deceased one or this piece of information belongs to me. So they recognized it and said, hey, this is mine. And in 66% of the cases, it went well. So that's what Julie Beichel and Trisoldi found out. For example, Julie Beichel had, I think, 58 participants. And uh, they always give, um, gave two, two transcripts to the participants. So there was a 50-50 chance. And they have to find their own um, uh, transcript. And it came out in 66% of the cases um, they were correct. They found their, their own transcript. And now you can say, or you might say, um, maybe there was a connection between the medium and the bereaved one, the participants. So that doesn't necessarily have to be a deceased person because the information that you find in the transcript was also known to the participant. So you, you might say, you don't, need a, you don't need a deceased one here. And that's why uh, we went one step further. And I always consider our own study as a complement to, for example, Julie Beichel's study, because we focused upon those kind of messages that neither the medium nor the sitter knew, like the two number ones and, and the, the, the horse riding. And that was the focus of our study. And the second focus was uh, how comforting it was. So what was the effect? What was the effect of, of orphan parents, for example? Yeah, and that's what we did. So we designed a questionnaire. Maybe I can tell you something about uh, our study design and, and what we did. And uh, we, we designed a questionnaire with about 13 questions. So we didn't want it to make it too long so that it could be answered in five to ten minutes or something. And um, yeah, we had 500 participants from all over the world, mainly from Germany, but also Switzerland, Austria, but from the United States, from India, from Luxembourg, Denmark, France, and so on. So really a very international study. 
And um, most of, of, of the meetings took place uh, face to face. So the medium really met uh, the bereaved one. So they have had direct contact. And um, after Corona came up, um, there was uh, the need to do it via Zoom, so online. And there were um, 192 um, sittings online. But all in all, there were 500. And um, how did you identify the participants? So we had no funds for our study and we had to deal with what we had. So um, we just used the usual bookings, the usual um, uh, bookings uh, of the participants. And uh, we just gave them the questionnaire after on. So we asked the participants in how far they were already convinced beforehand or if they were skeptics, because this was very important. Um, we had 71 skeptics who, who joined uh, um, uh, the study. And I think this is the most important group because skeptics uh, tend to say, yes, it's, it's clear that, that a person who believes in this and goes to your study, they will always tick, yes, very good, very good, very good. But we also had 71 skeptics in our study. And most interestingly, there was no difference between those who were convinced beforehand and those who were very skeptic. In the end, they all uh, gave quite the same level of answers. Very interesting. And um, yeah, so we had 500 and there was no contact beforehand. So the mediums didn't know uh, the participants. They just met them quite seconds before they started with, with, uh, with the sitting. And we, we said to the participants, it's absolutely okay when uh, you book an appointment with a wrong name. Just use the wrong name or, or uh, the name of, of your friend. Use another email address that you usually don't use. So the medium doesn't need anything. No photo, no name. You're contacting the participants in advance of their sittings? No, they booked an appointment um, on the homepage. So they had booked it on, in, in, on the online shop. And there is a description. There's a description. Um, they, they could read how they, can, um, how they can book the appointment. And there's the suggestion. You can use an, another name. You can use another email address. We don't need anything. So we didn't talk to them. There was no active contact to them. They booked and, and uh, um, had, they had to read uh, um, the suggestion on the homepage. They, bo they booked the appointment through a, a web page that you set up. No, it was the management, the management of the two mediums. So there was, there was, there was another person. He's the manager. He is uh, responsible for all uh, the booking processes and the homepage, and he cares for that. So, so the participants had contact with the manager, but they never had contact in advance with the mediums. And, and I gather these mediums were well known and well respected. Yes, absolutely. At least here in Europe. And uh, they had, well, combined more than 12,000 sittings. So very experienced uh, mediums. And uh, they are working according to the British spiritualism which means it is evidence-based. 
So they really have to deliver evidence, so a proof that the deceased one really is there. And that's how they work. I was a little confused because uh, earlier I understood that you sent the questionnaire to them after the uh, actual reading for them to respond. Yeah, that's correct. The questionnaire was sent three to four weeks after the sitting to, to the participants. So the participants, they have booked their appointments, so they were waiting for the appointment. Then they went to the medium and the, uh, the medium gave them messages for about 45 minutes. And then we waited three to four weeks before we sent out the questionnaire. So we sent out an email with a link to a questionnaire where the participants could answer how it was, uh, how they felt during the sitting, how accurate the information was and things like that, how comforting it was. And it was a mixture of uh, quantitative and qualitative um, questions. So sometimes they could tick uh, very much or just a little and sometimes they could um, describe um, what they have received, uh, what messages they have received and how precise they were. The question is why did we wait three to four weeks before we send out the questionnaire? I mean we could have asked the participants directly after the sitting. There are two reasons for that. First is we wanted them to think about the sitting, to, to reflect it. Because maybe after a, a few minutes after the sitting, you would say, wow, this was really great and I believe in it. But after, after a week, you might have found out that all these pieces of information could have been found on the internet or something like that. And that's why we gave them time to reflect it critically. And the other reason is, um, we wanted to give them time to do some research because there might have been an information like the two number ones and the horse riding that they had to do some research that they had to ask relatives or to take a look into a photo album or documents. And maybe I can give you an example for, um, for another evidence, for another message that a mother has received during a sitting. And this is my, my favorite one that I always use in my lectures. So there was this mother who has lost um, her son who was 13 years old. And during the sitting, um, this son gave the, uh, gave the information that um, on my funeral there was my favorite teacher and he wore an orange college jacket. And the mother said, I didn't know who the favorite teacher was and of course I didn't know who was wearing what kind of clothes because there were about 500 people on the funeral. There was this Bavarian village. The whole village was there and on that day she didn't see anything. I, I mean she, she has lost her child so you really do not see who is exactly there on the fun funeral. So she was asking the other pupils and she found out who the favorite teacher was and then she met the favorite teacher and she asked him uh, what clothes did you wear on the funeral and he answered I wore an orange colored jacket. So at the end it came out the information was correct and precise. And the question is again who is the originator of this piece of information. It can't be the mother because she didn't know the teacher, she didn't know 
that he was wearing an orange jacket, it couldn't be the medium. So what is obvious from my point of view, it is obvious that it has to be this 13 year old boy who still wants to show his mother, I'm still here. I mean, what would I do if I was dead? I would do exactly the same thing. I would deliver messages with highly specific pieces of information so that my family knows, yes, this must have come from my deceased one. And we have 183 cases, documented cases in our study. So not everyone has received such kind of a message. 331 participants have received such a message which neither the medium nor the sitter knew. And 183 of them could be verified correctly within the first three to four weeks. Of the people who you sent questionnaires to, how many actually responded? Well, 500 have responded. I don't know how many I have sent out. Um, I would say that about 70% of the people have answered because they were quite interested in it. But I have, no, I have not a precise number for that. But I think it's, it's really, it's, uh, it's, it's a, a good number. 70% have answered is, is very good. It would be interesting to know uh, any data about the ones who didn't answer. But with regard to the ones who did, uh, you probably have some demographic information. Yes, I have. So um, it was international. I already told you about that. And the youngest person was 17. The oldest was 86. And um, we started in uh, September 2019 and ended in uh, September 2022. And uh, we had about 90% or 80, 88% were women and 12% were male. And this is quite interesting, I think, but it's typical, <laughs> very typical, um, because I think um, that uh, women women are very open for emotions and for feelings and um, a man has to be tough a man has uh, has to um, be the strong person and he might not admit that there is something else than matter and when we take a look at how many people are studying the natural sciences and how many female and how many male students we have we can see that mostly at least here in Europe, we have male students in the natural sciences. And what do the natural sciences teach us? They teach us there is only matter. So why should a, why should a male student or, or a man say, hey, there is something else than matter? And I think um, this is shown in the percentage that we have 88% female and 12% and male participants. And I gather the Participants, the ones who did respond, were largely positive about the experience. Yes, that's correct. But we also had uh, some disappointed clients, of course, because that's what we always say. We can't guarantee a good afterlife contact. It's not like an experiment in a laboratory. You can't, you can't repeat it like a boy, bring water to the boil. So you can make it a hundred times. It will always be uh, with a hundred degrees centigrade. 
But an afterlife contact is different. So we humans or a soul is not repeatable. And you never know why an afterlife contact um, doesn't succeed. Maybe the medium has a bad day or it is the wrong time or whatever. So you can't guarantee, guarantee it. And um, yeah, we, we asked also about a very highly specific piece of information in the messages that could be directly verified. And we had here 86% um, of the participants said, yes, I have received such kind of an information that the medium could not possibly have known. And a further 10% said rather yes. So combined, there was about 96% of the participants who said, yes, I have received such a highly specific piece of information. And even the skeptics said it even the skeptics and we had 11 hardcore skeptics who said no way absolutely no way and these 11 no it were, were 10 10 of these 11 at the end were uh, so happy and they ticked always very good very good and they couldn't believe it yeah and uh, there was this in one interesting story about that man um, he was very skeptic but um, he had to promise her dying wife that when she has gone to the other side, when she has passed, she, he should go to a medium and he had to promise her. And so he went to a medium, but he didn't believe in it. And he said, no way. But after the, after the sitting, he had, he had written in, in the comments section, um, I'm so happy about it and I'm so happy that I trusted my wife. And I couldn't believe in it. I was so skeptic, but I have received messages that nobody knew, just my wife and me. It has to be my wife. That's what he said. So that's what we found out. It didn't matter uh, if you were a skeptic or if you believed in it uh, beforehand. So I have to assume, based on this experience, you would recommend that people uh, take advantage of the service of mediums, particularly mediums with uh, acknowledged reputations. Yes, absolutely. Because the second main uh, question in our study was in how far it was comforting for them. And I think with a really good afterlife contact, you can find healing. You can find comfort and healing. And when you take a look at the classic treatment, medical treatment, for example, you can't really find healing. And I can remember a lot of very, very touching and warm comments in, in, in the comment section of the questionnaire where people said, well, if we, uh, if we didn't go to, to the medium, if we didn't have received these information, these, these pieces of information, um, we would have uh, conducted suicide. Uh, we, ha we have, how do you call it? We have uh, conducted suicide. Is this correct? Sometimes we say committed suicide. Committed. That's the word, right? I knew there was a C in it, so they they said we we would have committed uh, suicide, and the afterlife contact really saved our lives. Yeah, these days I'm told that the phrase committed suicide is becoming unpopular, and it's more like I, I would have died by suicide. Well, I think that's because it's sometimes considered uh, the effects of um, depression 
or maybe addictions of various kinds. And, and when you say somebody committed suicide, it implies a moral judgment. And I think people are trying to get away from making moral judgments about it. So there was this one wo woman who said, my, my husband would, have, would have, uh, have killed himself um, if he didn't go to, to the medium. And I think it is, it is an, additional, an additional treatment. It's not an alternative to the classic treatment. I think it should be considered as a complement. And 82% of the participants said that it was very comforting. And another 14% said that it was rather comforting. And I think there is no pill on the market who could give you so much comfort. And even if there was no truth in it, if, even if there, there, there was no truth in it, you can see the effect. The people say it is comforting. I have found consolation. That's very impressive. You have to remember, because skeptics always say, of course, an orphan parent who goes to a medium, he wants to be comforted. I mean, it is clear that a mom or a dad who has lost their child, they would say, yes, I believe in it. And I take always very good, very good, very good. But what the skeptics do not understand is that orphan parents, or especially orphan parents, are the most critical people of all. They don't want to lie to themselves. They, they do not suddenly become naive or stupid or gullible. No, it's exactly the opposite. There's no one more critical than a father or a mother who has lost the child. And this is something that skeptics haven't understood. They always call it confirmation bias. According to the motto, um, yes, I confirm everything because I want to be comforted. But it is not like that. That's a very important point, Oliver. Let me ask you, since your original contact with the two mediums, have you had any further ongoing communications with Yoma? Yes, I have been, I think, three or four times to this one medium, and uh, I have received a lot of messages. And uh, a few of them have come true, so they're... Um, there are messages about the future, for example, and about the previous life. And yeah, but I think the most important sitting is always the first sitting, because this is the most impressive one, I think. And uh, the third or the fourth one isn't imp as impressive as the first one. Yeah. And we also started um, measuring brain waves during. Um, such a sitting. So I have measured uh, the second medium where I was and we found out that especially the very slow delta waves are interesting, are important during a communication uh, with the spiritual world. So shortly before this uh, medium gave a message, a mediumistic message, we could see that especially on the left side in her brain, um, the delta, the delta waves um, arise significantly, and we are not the first ones who have uh, who have measured uh, the left side of the brain. There's, for example, Dr. Raymond from New York. I think he did quite the same thing with uh, Teresa Caputo um, on the Dr. Ross show, as far as I know. 
and we just found out quite the same. I think it's very interesting because delta waves uh, you have when you're unconscious. So when you're unconscious, there are delta waves and uh, Teresa Caputo and the medium here, Bettina Suviroda, it's her name, they, they give messages, they are awake, they're walking around. And even if you're a skeptic and you would say it is all a code reading technique, for example, so psychological tricks, I would say you have better waves in your, in your head because you have to be focused, you have to be concentrated. But here we have delta waves, so it's, it's really a complete different thing. That might be a further confirmation that they are obtaining information from some other unusual source. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it is not a psychological trick where you really have to be focused and concentrated. I think it is um, uh, quite the opposite. You don't have to think, you, you, you have to stop your thinking, you have to stop your brain, and then you can have contact with the spiritual world. Have you felt, as you did in the life-changing experience, it was a direct contact. You didn't seem to need a medium, and I assume when you said somebody touched you on the forehead and on the shoulder, that that was Yoma. Yes, yes. And I practice it every day. And there are ups and downs. There are days where it goes very well. And um, I really practice it. So I really try to, to receive pictures in my mind or even messages or words. And I have made an apprenticeship uh, with the second medium. So I really uh, learned how, to be, how it is to be a medium. I know how it is to have a telepathic connection because it's telepathy or some kind or some form of telepathy when you are uh, communicating with uh, the spiritual world. And I am not good at it, but I know how it is. So I would never uh, deliver my, or I, would, I would never go into public and say, here, you can book an appointment with me. I'm a medium. Um, there, are, there are a lot of uh, better mediums than me. But I think it is important for me as a scientist that I understand it, it, how it works. And that's why I think I have felt Yoma. So this was some kind of opening the door to make my first steps. And I, I think I don't have to be a medium. I think I should stay in a scientist and, and, and show the people, especially um, those who are in a deep grief and who are stuck in a materialistic worldview, that the, we will really have evidence and that it, it is not a, a madness or that you have to be crazy when you, you're, you're dealing with these uh, topics. Well, Oliver, this has been a fascinating discussion. You're doing pioneering work, and I want to let our viewers know that we also have a follow-up interview planned where we'll go more into scientific theories, because I know your book, Beyond Matter, deals very largely with the, the, the question of how can we incorporate this knowledge into our scientific understanding. And uh, you, you have many ideas about that in terms of quantum physics, in terms of the physiology, in terms of questions relating to biogenesis and so forth. Yes, that's correct. Because I think it's, 
uh, not important only to show the Erium study. I think it's not, it would not be enough to convince a person who is stuck in a materialistic worldview because you really think uh, that everything you have been taught at school or at in university, it has to be true. So I think I really have to shake the materialistic worldview and that's why I spent so many pages on these topics, biogenesis and evolution and things like that. Because when then you understand, oh, there are a lot of questions still to ask, you might be more open to the spiritual world and to, to my Irium study. That was the idea behind it. Well, Oliver, thank you very much for reaching out to me and uh, taking the time today for this interview. It's been a great pleasure. I'm delighted to be able to share your work and your findings with the New Thinking Aloud audience. I have to thank you. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Jeff. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you, because you are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos.